There are three words that come out of Greek mythology to express a time of perfect harmony and peace and prosperity. It is the phrase, the golden age. Frankly, it has been the pursuit of mankind from the days of Adam's fall and exile from the Garden of Eden to find this epic era, this golden age. It was Nimrod's grand design when he built Babylon. It was and will be the Antichrist's agenda as he attempts to rule the planet and usher in a one-world government and one-world religion and with it a global period of great peace and prosperity. There's something in the heart of mankind that longs for a utopia where, where peace and justice reigns supreme. I believe it is nothing less than the tracing of divine truth on the heart of mankind. God has also built into the heart of, of man a sense of coming disaster, coming judgment. And the belief is nearly universal in some sort of coming world disaster. Recent events in Haiti only heighten the sense of our planet crumbling in some future series of disasters. Just one more movie was released to seize the attention of our culture simply named 2012. And the caption underneath the movie title, I saw a picture of it and it, the word simply said, you were warned. Now, when anybody stand in line to watch a movie that just adds to their anxiety that the world is going to collapse with all these cataclysmic events, well, his opening weekend grossed worldwide $200 million. Exceeded their expectations. I, I haven't seen it. I'll wait till Walmart sells it for five bucks. Maybe I'll buy it then. But isn't it interesting that tens of thousands of people all around the world would feed their already brimming anxiety with one more description of a coming cataclysmic upheaval of planet Earth. These are two incompatible notions. We believe we can make it to the utopia and, and peace and harmony and something bad is going to happen on the planet. For the believer, these Two notions are not impossible at all, nor incompatible. In fact, the Bible provides the information and the details, and they are both going to occur on planet Earth. The tribulation, as we have seen in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, in fact, most of the book of Revelation is dealing with the tribulation, is a series of cataclysmic events, one after another brought about by the wrath of God as he judges humanity and all the nations of the world and at the same time prepares a redeemed people, those who will believe in the gospel during the tribulation after the rapture and most specifically preparing Israel as a redeemed nation for her returning Messiah. And when the tribulation is over, the majority of people on the planet will be dead and most of the planet utterly devastated. The Bible records that of the last events of the tribulation, the majority of the remaining nations and their Remaining armies will coalesce in one massive army to battle the Lord in what we have already studied, the battle of Armageddon as Jesus Christ descends and stands upon the Mount of Olives. That global army is defeated by one word of the living Lagos, the word of his power. And Jesus Christ will then usher in the golden age. It really does come true 
Listen, the idea of the golden age is also stamped upon the heart of every human being, and it's nothing more than the tracings of the etchings of God's truth written into the mind of mankind. It causes them to both fear coming disaster and long for a coming utopia. I googled the words, the golden age. Such a great resource for preachers nowadays. It's absolutely wonderful. If I ever lack anything, I can Google. I'm not getting my material from the Internet, but illustrations are rampant. I ended up page after page on the golden age. It's an expression used for the best of times of anything. Golden age of sports, golden age of TV. Of course, we think of it in in apocalyptic terms, It's interesting, one particular guru, I watched him for about five minutes talking about the coming age, and he said this, and I thought it was fascinating. He said, we are approaching the golden age, and it will be the age of the crown. He said that over and over, it will be the age of the crown. He doesn't know how right he is. But of course, mention to him that that crown will be on the head of Jesus Christ, and discussion ends. Isn't it tragically ironic that our world, in fact, our current United Nations, now numbering a little over 190 nations strong, reject the truth of Christ and the coming reign? They reject, of course, in fact, despise the concept of a creator God who came to earth as God the Son and died on the cross for the sins of mankind and by faith in him. We will one day reign with him upon the earth. They reject all of that. But they long for a united, global, peaceful community where war is a distant memory. Isn't it ironic that the United Nations longs for that moment in biblical terminology? In fact, directly across the street in the plaza, there on um, one avenue at 44th, downtown New York, you have the United Nations Building where political rallies have been taking place in that, pl- in that plaza for the last 60 years. It's ironic that on that plaza, this monument is an engraving. Engraved on the monument are the words of the prophet Isaiah. And they read, They shall beat their swords into plowshares or plows, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah. Although mankind doesn't want anything to do with surrender to Jesus as ruler, they can't resist the biblical promise and they long for the hope revealed in the words of God's own prophets of this global period of peace where mankind will reshape swords into plows to harvest bumper crops. There's another view of the monument I found online with people getting their picture in front of it. It shows a better perspective of just how magnificent this monument is. Again, you can see the verse engraved into the wall, and at the end of the quote is the prophet's name, Isaiah. It's nicknamed, this wall, by the way, is nicknamed the Isaiah Wall. Now, by the way, the specific reference in Isaiah has been left out. We don't have chapter and verse. Perhaps they're afraid somebody will look it up. It comes from Isaiah in his uh, prophecy, chapter 2 and verse 
4, and it's interesting to me that, that they have cut the verse in half, which isn't all that ironic, but it, it is sad. The portion they engraved into the wall says nothing, of course, about the Lord, whom we know as Jesus Christ. Again, on the wall it says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, or plows, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Here's the first part of the phrase. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, a reference to his reign. He will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, this prophecy of global peace is directly tied to the literal reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem, where he will subjugate and rule over the nations. You can't have the last part of the verse without the first part of the verse. You can't have the golden age of the crown until Jesus Christ returns and wears the crown as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, our world wants a peaceful solution without a personal savior. One Christian artist painted a picture of Jesus being excluded by the nations of our world as they in their futility attempt to bring about world peace. Perhaps you've seen it before. Jesus is pictured standing next to the United Nations building there on First Avenue, knocking on the side of the building as if to say, would, would, would you like to include me in your plans of world peace? And global harmony. Our world longs for peace. They just don't want the Prince of Peace. The world really doesn't want to hear talk of Jesus Christ returning as sovereign ruler, and because of their unbelief, according to the Bible, all those who refuse the claims of Christ will one day be excluded from the from this coming golden age. They're not only going to miss heaven. But they're going to miss this glorious prelude to heaven, which we rarely study in the church, which we will. What will the kingdom be like? One author wrote, imagine a world described by the prophets throughout the Old Testament, a world dominated by righteousness and goodness, a world where there is no injustice, where no court ever renders an unjust verdict, where everyone is treated fairly. Imagine a world where that is true, where everything that is true, right, and noble marks every aspect of life, including interpersonal relationships, commerce, education, and government. Imagine a world where there is complete, total, permanent peace, where joy abounds and good health prevails, so much so that the world's growing population lives for hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse is removed where the environment is restored to the pristine purity of the Garden of Eden, where peace reigns even in the animal kingdom, so that the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion together, and a little boy will play with them or lead them. There are prophecies throughout the Old Testament of Christ's first coming. They were all fulfilled, literally, About 109 of them, I've learned. 
We have about 220 prophecies about his second coming. They are yet to be fulfilled. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 spoke of Christ's first coming. 36 of them spoke of his second coming with great precision. There are around 1,500 Old Testament passages dealing with the second coming of the Messiah. In the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses, on average, have something to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are nearly 2,000 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ throughout the Bible. I didn't see any of you writing that down. You're going to need another for the test. I just want to warn you, okay? Now, how do we know that the coming king is Jesus? How do we know that this ruling king in the coming kingdom is this same person? Many Jewish scholars believe there are two messiahs, one who would suffer and one who would reign. And if all you had was the Old Testament prophecies, you might be led to the conclusion, that conclusion, since the Old Testament prophets often did not make a clear distinction between the first coming of Christ and his second coming, a gap that we now know has lasted some 2,000 years. With this new creation, the prophets knew nothing of at all, called the church. But by comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a clear picture that these are not two men, but one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by way of introduction, I'll take you just in your memory to Genesis. The Bible records all the way back in chapter 49 that the ruling scepter, that is the king's staff, will belong to someone who descends from the tribe of Judah, Compare that to Luke in his gospel who carefully traces for us that Christ's genealogy traces back to and through the tribe of Judah, Luke chapter 3. The prophet Micah revealed the birthplace of the Messiah as Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Luke chapter 2 verses 4 to 7 revealed that Christ was indeed born where? In Bethlehem. Isaiah prophesied, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call him Emmanuel, that is, God with us, Isaiah 7. The angel Gabriel then comes to a virgin named Mary with the stunning news that God will, by his power, cause her to conceive, though a virgin. And he says, the angel Gabriel to her, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And verse 35 of chapter 1 says, He will be called the Son of God. That is, God has come to be with us. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would in his reign one day exalt every valley and make every mountain low and the crooked path straight and the rough places plain. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 4. John the baptizer appears centuries later as the forerunner of the Messiah, and he says, oh, by the way, he will make every crooked path straight, every mountain low, every valley lifted, and every rough way smooth. David prophesied that the Messiah would be hated without a cause in Psalm 35, 19. John's gospel records our own Lord saying, they hated me and they have hated my father. But this has come to pass 
so that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. John 15, 23 and 25. Is the Old Testament Messiah the same person as Jesus Christ? The prophet Zechariah said that the king of Israel would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he prophesied that people would rejoice throughout Jerusalem at his coming, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Centuries later, Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowd shouts, Hosanna to the son of David, Mark 11, 7 to 11. Even more specifically, David foretold of the Messiah's close friend with whom he would share bread, bread from his own hand. That close friend would lift up his heel against him and betray him, Psalm 41, verse 9. In Matthew's gospel, Judas Iscariot receives bread from the hand of Jesus and then slips out to betray him, to lift his heel against him, Matthew 13, 26. Zechariah even promised that the price of that betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver in chapter 11, verse 13. Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, tells us of that event where Judas, filled with remorse, though not repentance, returns to the, the chief priests and scribes, and he says to them, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say to him, we don't really care. And Judas throws onto the temple floor 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, verse 3. David prophesied of the crucifixion of the Messiah as he wrote with divinely ordained, precise foresight. As he says in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, a band of evildoers has encompassed me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. Is that the method of execution of the Messiah? John 20, 25. Has Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, entering that room where the disciples have assembled and Thomas with them? And he says to Thomas, see my hands. He's retained the scars for all time. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he will humble himself even unto death, death on a what? Cross. David also wrote in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew's gospel records, and when they had crucified him, the soldiers divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Listen, how specific can you get? How many more prophecies would you need of the 109? I'll give you a few more. Is the crucified Messiah the Savior who died for the sins of mankind? Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of that happened as he was beaten. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God the Father speaking of God the Son. The Apostle Paul will write centuries later in Romans 5, verses 6 to 9, while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare even to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. David also wrote of our Lord's resurrection. And leading, he uses this phrase, leading captivity captive. I believe emptying paradise from Hades and into the place of heaven with him. Psalm 68, 18, Paul uses the same language. When Christ ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. Is the Lord of the Old Testament, the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53, the same person as the resurrected and ascended Christ of the New Testament? Absolutely. The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament agree in unison and without any contradiction. He is one and the same. But let me ask another question. If the Messiah of the Old Testament is the same person as the Messiah of the New Testament, how do we know that that Messiah will one day come back literally to rule the world? I mean, think about it. Isn't it enough that he died for us? Isn't it enough that he will take us to heaven? How do we know that this same one will reign and we with him in the kingdom? How do we know that he's going to come back and rule on planet earth? Well, for starters, we know that he's going to come back for a second time for the same reason we know he came the first time. The scriptures, and in fact the very record of history as a witness, testify to the first coming of Christ and his death, and the witnesses testify to his resurrection. The same inspired book tell us he's coming back again and one day all of history will, will culminate in the appearing of Jesus Christ and his redeemed with him. It won't be at that occasion to knock on the side of the United Nations building and politely ask to be included in their plans. When he comes the second time, the days of invitation will be over. And he will judge the nations and set up his undisputed, uncontested, unchallenged, invincible throne. Psalm chapter 2 reveals that the rule of Christ will be universal. It prophesies of this coming reign with precision. In fact, just turn there. I'm not going to finish my introduction anyway. Turn to Psalm chapter 2, okay? Just listen to David as he, as he writes Sometimes it's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. They, they speak of one another. It, it's, it's amazing. Listen to what, what he writes in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Well, David, what's the futility of their, their devising? Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's a phrase in the Old Testament for the Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we're not going to be accountable to triune God. We're not going to bend our knee to him. We're not going to be restricted to his anointed. Now watch verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon 
Zion, my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. In other words, the king is coming. Now how do you respond to that? Well, here's how. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You know, for heaven's sake, wise up. That's my paraphrase. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Is that a picture of Revelation 6 to 19 or what? Is it an introduction to Revelation chapter 20 or what? Perfectly. The wrath of God is revealed against the nations and you have all of these cataclysmic events and then the son will take the throne. You'd better bend your knee to him now so that you can reign with him then or you'll have to be subjugated by him then forever in his great and terrible judgment. And then as he takes the throne, thus begins the golden age. It really does come true. Jeremiah 30 prophesied that Israel would be converted. Abraham restored the sons of Abraham to her land. Paul did the same in Romans 11. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and Zephaniah, and more refer to this global kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city. And I have an artist rendering that I'm saving according to specifications of what that looks like. And let me tell you, you will never think about it the same ever again. Isaiah records that the millennial kingdom will be a time of unprecedented peace and harmony and justice. Micah repeats the prophecy of Isaiah as he says, the nations will hammer their swords into plows. They're spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift sword against nation. They will be trained for war no more. The golden age will literally come to pass. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the United Nations of our world want the right thing. They're just looking in the wrong direction. And the religious liberals aren't helping either. They're in pulpits around our country today. They're not doing any good. In fact, they're blind people leading the blind. They would say, a good religious liberal, if we had him here, which we won't, <laughs> Jesus is just going to return spiritually. Don't take that stuff literally. It's not to be... Fulfilled physically. He just he descends into your life. That's all he's ever going to do. That's what's known as spiritualizing the second coming. There's an ancient Hebrew word for that. It's pronounced baloney. I reserve, <laughs> I reserve that word just for people like that. It's utterly ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is that not one of the prophecies relating to the first coming... We're spiritual. 
They, they were physical. They were literal. If, if, if the prophecy said Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, it meant literal Bethlehem. He was literally, physically born. Why would we take the prophecies of Jesus reigning in Jerusalem spiritually? That's just a nice thing to think. Listen, if the prophecies in the Old Testament related to Christ's first coming actually happened literally, we have every reason to believe then that all the prophecies of his second coming will happen literally. No interpreter of the Bible has the right or the authority or the discernment to, to have some kind of dual hermeneutic, some kind of dual interpretive system. That one's literal, that one's spiritual, that one's physical, that one's metaphorical, that one's not going to happen, that one will. That one's not going to ever take place, this one will. We have every reason to believe, because the Bible says so, that planet Earth during the millennial kingdom will physically experience the conditions of pre-fall, the garden. Food will be plentiful. The animal kingdom will no longer fear mankind, and mankind will no longer fear the animal kingdom. Yeah, I can have a cat. I just thought I'd throw that in there. No longer be afraid of cats. A child, we're told, a nursing child can play with the cobra. I mean, that redefines a child's rattler, doesn't it? (laughs) Isaiah writes that the cow and the bear will graze together. Beyond our backyard fence, cows and heifers and newborn calves are grazing. Imagine letting a bear loose in that pasture. What would happen? In the kingdom, everything will be changed, even what they eat. The bear will no longer eat a cow. He'll graze on grass. Isaiah 65 says that lifespans for the believers entering the kingdom who survived the tribulation They enter the kingdom as believers after that judgment that sends the goats to await their final torment. And those who are believing the sheep into the kingdom, they're going to marry and multiply, and that will be the population over the thousand years that exceeds anything we could imagine that we will reign over. We're told that those people will have lifespans like Adam and the patriarchs they, before them, that they're going to live for hundreds of years. In fact, Isaiah says that a hundred-year-old man will be considered a youth, a young man, just getting broken in. A hundred today means everything's breaking, right? Imagine somebody's going to say, now how can that be? That can't be literal. What's harder to believe? That God could translate us to heaven, and all the liberals believe that. And we're going to have a body that can last forever, but he can't somehow create a body that'll last a few hundred years? Can you get a hold of eternity? Can you, can you grasp forever? You ever sat alone and just thought about how long that would be, and you kind of think, you, you try to think, we can't think, and as you get a little flash and everything shuts down, it crashes, and you've got to reboot the whole system. We can't, we can't grasp it. But is Jesus Christ the one who is going to literally, physically return? You know, Jesus knew that that question would be asked, and he knew that that doubt would rise. And so he made sure that his angels not only announced his first coming, he made sure his angels announced his 
second coming. Let me show you where, at least one passage, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're moving toward Revelation. Acts 1, Jesus is about to ascend. He's surrounded by his disciples, and he provides this final challenge, a wonderful promise and challenge. Verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now watch what happens next, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. In other words, it obscured their view. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, those would be angels, stood beside them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, this same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Now, how clear is that? Was Jesus just ascending spiritually? Were the disciples having a mystical experience? Was that a mystical ascension? Was that some kind of mystical fluffy cloud? Was that a mystical angel? Literal physical sight, physical ascension, a real cloud, and he disappears. And suddenly two men dressed in white say, the same way you saw him go up, he's going to come back down in the future. And the golden age will one day come then when the prince of peace physically comes back to reign, and that prince is none other than the promised one of the Old Testament, the suffering Savior who died as a lamb of the New Testament, who also resurrected from the grave. It's the same person who's coming back. All right, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Revelation chapter 20 for just a, for, for a second here. Well, don't interpret that literally. Maybe longer, just for a moment, though we don't have much time. Let's answer one question. How long will it last? I've said a thousand years, but how do we know that? And is the Bible clear? Well, look at verse 4, which is where we left off in our last study. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are the believers who died during the tribulation because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast, that is the Antichrist, or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're part of the group that reigns with him. And we'll look at the three or four different groupings in our next session. This is the first resurrection. Blessed, verse 6, and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's including us, by the way. Over these, the second death has no power. A second death is a reference in Scripture to hell. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, which means we're having direct communion with Him, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, how long will the kingdom reign of Christ be? 
I don't know. I'm not sure. We're not told specifically. Well, six times in seven verses, we're told a thousand years. You want to get your pencil out? Here we go. Verse 2, the latter part. He laid hold of the dragon, the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 2. Verse 3, near the end, until the thousand years were completed. Last part of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Those are the unbelievers. Last part of verse 6, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, I'm just not sure God's specific enough here. Should we take them literally? God couldn't be clearer. Listen, if you told your child, go get in the car. I'm going to take you to McDonald's for an hour. You know, it's, it's been two days since we've been there, and I just can't stand being away from it that long. It's just so peaceful. So get in the car. We're going to go to McDonald's. Now, come on. Go get in the car. Let's go to McDonald's for an hour. I'm going to take you there for an hour. Come on. Get in the car. Let's go to McDonald's. I'm going to take you there to play for an hour. Go get in the car. I'm going to take you to McDonald's for an hour. Go get in the car. I'm going to take you to McDonald's for an hour. Go get in the car. I'm going to take you to McDonald's for an hour. What if that child said, I didn't think you were serious? You'd go get a Happy Meal all by yourself. That's what you'd do. (laughs) Playing the playground all by yourself. How many times does God have to tell us? And through the prophets and the apostles and our own Lord's words and from the lips of angels that there's a coming, literal, physical presence and reign of Christ on earth and it will include us and it will be beyond our imagination. You see the believer, and I hope as we study this together you'll, 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 you'll capture why the apostle Paul was so excited about the kingdom. We tend to skip it. We go from earth to heaven. Let me tell you, there's this amazing interlude prelude called the millennial kingdom. It is a golden age and it is for real. You know what? It's also written on the hearts of men and women as an intuitive truth, a dying wish. Surely this world could somehow get along. Surely it'll one day be unified. Let's try to do it now. Surely we can somehow usher in global peace. It will happen one day, but only after the Prince of Peace comes and the kingdom of His glory, the climate, the topography of our world, the geography, the animal kingdom, the lifespan, the new temple the city of Jerusalem, all of it magnificent. But here at the outset, just as an introduction, I wanted to just talk about the king. Because there can be no peace without this prince. There can be no kingdom without this king. He who went up is coming back down again. I love the words to that old gospel song. I didn't see Jesus when he went up, 
but I'll see him when he comes down. You know, it's even more than that. If I could tweak the theology, I wasn't with him when he went up, but I'll be with him when he comes down. I wasn't with him when he went away, but I'll be with him when he comes back. I will and you with me who acknowledge he is Messiah. He is God with us. He is the living Lord. He is the Savior who died for us, was buried, resurrected, ascended, and he's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, thank you for the clarity of the prophets. And Moses, our Lord, the angels, the apostles, the revelation has been given to us not to obscure but to reveal If you've never said, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Messiah. I trust in you. As the one prophesied in the Old Testament, who would suffer, as Isaiah said he would. The one of the New Testament who came as the Lamb of God who died for me. I place my faith in this Lamb. The one who rose, the prophets and the apostles agreeing that he will come back to reign. I want to be with him. And so now I do homage to the Son. Now I will place my hope in this one who will be my refuge. If you're not sure how to receive the gift of Christ's forgiveness for your sin and to give your life to him, turning from your sin and turning to the Savior. We can talk with you or we can make an appointment with you to take the gospel and clarify some things that may be confusing. But this service, as is the gathering of the church designed for the edification, the encouragement, the challenge, and the provoking of the believer. And so today, Father, we thank you that that has occurred as we have given praise to you and learned of you.